very happy to welcome Craig Manchuk, Vice President and Portfolio Management at Osterweiss. Uh, Craig, welcome to Forward Guidance. Um, I want to ask, how is it uh, in, in the land of bonds? I know that the long duration uh, part of the market is is just really getting hammered. Uh, looking at something like a you know the ultra ultra long duration uh, you know twenty five years zero coupon stuff from peak to trough it's down s- close to sixty five percent so uh, just what's it like to be in a market where duration has suffered and, and what have you know been your and your your funds uh, uh, views on on interest rate risk and and what are they now? Well, good morning, Jack. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's been an interesting time the last two years for sure. Um, we you know we are inundated with just a plethora of opinions from lots of different people and different angles. And everybody's trying to call the top of the market and what we should be doing next. Um, um, it, it's been pretty remarkable to see the magnitude of the drawdown, not terribly unexpected, but you know the, the magnitude because people have just gotten so conditioned for so long to very, very, very low rates. And that's not been the norm over my career. And, you know, if I look at the arc of my career going all the way back into the mid eighties, um, you know, we had, we just went by the, the, the 36 year anniversary of the crash of 87. I was in the markets working at that time. And, um, I wish I had the, uh, I have a printout saved somewhere of all the, the stock price moves on, you know, that were on my machine that day. It was pretty remarkable. But you know that happened because we had an environment where the long treasuries were over nine percent, and so you know it's not un- unusual for me to, to see you know us approaching five percent on the ten year right now. Uh, it just so happens that over the last 15, 16 years, ever since the financial crisis, everybody just assumed all right we're in this really super low rate environment, and um, most of the professionals in the market have operated only in that kind of regime. So. Um, my, my two partners and I, I guess, you know, some would call us old fashioned. I don't really like to use that term because it sounds kind of dusty and old, but, um, uh, I, I think we're just, um, pretty careful in particular and, and realize that, that it was very clear that there was going to be significantly higher rates, that the fed was going to have to do something dramatic to turn off the spigot here of, uh, of just free money. And, uh, it was fueling inflation that was running out of control. So seeing where we've gotten to today um, doesn't really surprise us. I mean, we're, we're, we've been saying for a long time, we have not been willing to extend duration out into this. We've had it dozens, maybe more economists that we've talked to and met with have told us 3%, now's the time to extend duration. And it was three and a quarter, and then three and a half, and then four. And, you know, and more recently, four and a half, there is a, a very well-known, uh, you know, economics advisory firm that was in our office recently. And they came and said, you know, now's the time to be extending duration, right? Everybody's trying to make a call. And that was four and a half percent. And here we are knocking on the door five. So where does it stop? I don't know. You know, we don't have a crystal ball and we're not in the, uh, we're not in the business of making bets. And for us to make a call like that would be making a big bet because if we're wrong, you know, there, there are still some significant drawdowns and capital losses that you'll take in the short run on you know, trying to get the exact top of the market and figure it out. So our thinking is that the Fed has been very clear all along in their intentions. They want to be data dependent. Uh, they will, will continue to hike until they feel like the data signals 
that they, they can sort of back off and ease off. However, um, once they do turn, we think they'll be equally transparent and clear about their intentions to actually bring rates down. And at that point, we'll start to probably get more comfortable extending some of the duration out further into the market. So duration is interest rate risk and credit risk is you know the risk that you, you don't get paid back. So uh, you have, uh, Bob, and we've dodged a lot of the, the losses on the, on the duration front by sticking uh, to the short term of the market. Uh, and even now with the tenure at 5%, you, you don't, you, you know, if the economists were to come into your office now, knock, knock and say, Hey, 5%, now's the time. You're not saying that now you're, you you want to wait until the fed cuts. We don't have a hard, fast target. It's kind of a moving target. I think you know, I joke around with, with uh, my partner, Carl, you know, when we were at three, he said, Oh, you know, at five, I'd be buying. Well, now we're at five. He goes, well, maybe at six, it's it, it it's all dependent really on on the tone of things around us, right? What we're seeing in terms of inflation, we continue to see signs of inflation, um, various pockets all over the place. We were just talking yesterday about concert tickets. Right? I mean, the price of the the Taylor Swift concert tickets were out of control. They're, they're three hundred dollar face value, and then by the time people actually get them in their hands, some are paying a thousand dollars for that. That seems incredibly <laughs> incredibly high to me. Um, same thing with sports tickets, you know, tickets to ball games, you know, entertainment. Uh, the younger generation is much more interested in intent on experiences. So I think the experiential um, services part of the economy continues to uh, inflate and probably at a rate that uh, I would think is somewhat unsustainable, but, you know, we shall see. Famous last words, right? I don't want to call the top, but um, but you know, we're, and we're seeing signs of some of that inflation abating in certain places. But the cost of, I mean, oil type oil today is up another three percent. So gasoline out here in California is just about six dollars for everybody, which is a crazy high number. People have to pay it. Um, food prices have actually sort of uh, abated somewhat. You know, chicken prices are actually down. They've been down sort of quite a bit off the highs. So there are areas where we have seen prices correcting. Um, some of the other commodity markets uh, as they relate to sort of China's consumption of, of industrial metals, commodity prices have come down. So we're seeing that in aluminum, copper, some of those other things that aren't part of the uh, necessarily part of the EV component package for EV batteries. Most of the uh, rare earths and things in, in that cohort are still quite elevated. When looking at the short duration fixed income market, what have you liked and, and what do you like now in the high yield bond, uh, um, the loan market convertible securities and and why? And also, I know that, Joe, I'll say this so you don't have to, there's no such thing as the high yield market. Like each each bond is its own thing. But just looking at you know St. Louis Fed, uh, the, the, the high yield index spread is 4.37. So whatever the duration is, that's the risk-free treasury. And then on top of that is, you know, a little over 4%. Is that attractive to you at this time, as you know, some people say, the people knocking on your door that were late cycle, they've been wrong so far, but they might they might uh, not continue to be wrong. They may they eventually, you know, they'll be right. And so how do you think about that sort of risk reward? You're speaking my language here. You know, we I've been one of the people that's, that said, um, has been saying for a long time, and I, we say it to our investors all the time, this is a market of bonds, not a bond market. Every single security is different. Every document is different. Uh, the you know the intentions of each of the borrowers is different, so it is the least 
homogenized or commoditized part of the bond market. Uh, and as a result, you know, it, it, it plays into our, our, our way of investing, which is bottoms up, security by security, bond by bond, company by company. Um, what we, we just wrote about in our quarterly outlook was the, um, the gift horse that we feel that the market's been giving us uh, recently and continues is in the one to two year investment grade part of the market. Um, there are, you know, it, it's number one, we do think that eventually the Fed's tightening here will lead to a recession. I, I don't know when, uh, I don't know how severe, but we do think that there will be a recession at some point. Um, with that, it behooves us to continue to sort of in, increase the quality of our overall book. We can go and buy whatever we'd like. And you know, we've, we've largely stayed in high yield for the last 15 years because it's been the most attractive part of the market. So what, what we like to do, um, you know, the, the three of us are, are probably as, as you know, chicken as, the, as it comes from an investing standpoint, but um, we like to find the most attractive part of the market and then look for the least risky way to play that. Okay. So we're always looking at how do we truncate downside? How do we eliminate downside? Uh, because if we're investing in things that provide us with a fair yield, um, we're not necessarily looking to sort of step on the gas and, and, and play it from the most aggressive end. That's it's not what our investors want us to do. They like to sleep at night. We like to sleep at night. They don't want to worry that one day we're going to come in and, and the fund is going to be down you know, a few percent. That's just not the way we've ever invested, and, and nor will it be any way that we do in the future. So one to two year investment grade paper we've been able to find in the six and, and in some cases as high as 7% yields. Now, it's, that's not everywhere. But, you know, we have to hunt and find individual securities and uh, and really kind of scrounge around and, and scrape and accumulate positions uh, in that space, you know, kind of a couple million bonds at a time. So it's not like I can just sort of push a button, say, oh, that looks good and wave it into the portfolio. Right? So there's there's some limited liquidity features in some of these names. But in other cases, we find securities that have very you know, couple billion dollar issues. Um, and liquidity is actually quite good. And what tends to happen is if you think about market structure, market structure is what allows us actually to do what we do and to do it well, because most of uh, the, the, the marketplace is focused on an indexation model, right? So typically, um, mutual fund managers have a particular silo or sleeve in which they're operating, whether it's high yield or investment grade. Not as many have this broad mandate like we do. And if you're a, an investment grade manager, what you're trying to keep pace with is the ag or some investment grade index. Bloomberg now, aggregate, aggregate index. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So most of those indices tend to be longer term, right? They'll have an average duration of somewhere in, you know, it could be five, six, seven, which means they have bonds that have 10 year maturities and many in the investment grade issues are even 20 year maturities. So, uh, investment grade portfolios that are based on that index need you know, a, a certain amount of beta. And what they like is to try to get the, the names in there that are going to most closely track that index or outperform it. When they start to see things that, that roll down on the maturity schedule and get inside two years or even down to one year, that security can become a drag for them on their performance. So a lot of times what they're looking to do is exit the less 
uh, index sensitive names and add more index sensitive names. We are the beneficiaries of that because we can opportunistically be at the front end and say, okay, we, we can be a liquidity provider for you that allows you to get out of the names that you want to exit if they happen to be names we like, and then reinvest your cash elsewhere. So, you know, in, in years past, banks and investment banks would take that position. But as we've rolled forward from the financial crisis, um, banks and investment banks keep fewer and fewer and fewer positions on their books. There's much less of a proprietary bias, and therefore they don't get in the way. So what they're looking for are people like us to be the liquidity providers for their clients on the other side. Somewhat similar uh, <clears throat> happens in the high yield market as well, because the typical high yield investors are also benchmark oriented. And the same thing happens when they get something that's going to be not either falling out of the uh, of the index because it's, it's getting too short or they have an opportunity within the capital structure to buy the same name but extend maturity and extend duration and look for a little bit more beta or bang for their buck they'll exit the shorter maturity paper which is kind of what we like to buy and what that enables us to do is buy these at yields that sometimes approximate the yields on the longer dated paper you know, we, we can't lock those yields in for quite as long an amount of time, but that's okay. If I can get, you know, seven or 8% on a one or two year high yield bond that has seven year paper, that's also yielding some, something similarly. Um, we like that because what we've done is we've eliminated a lot of the spread risk that we would have had spread volatility um, and or spread uh, you know, widening it'll impact the longer bonds much more dramatically than it'll impact ours. So in a rising rate environment, the natural way that we invest <laughs> works really, really well uh, because we don't have the exposure in, in anywhere near the magnitude that most of the index-based funds do out in that longer part of the curve. So if you're competing against an index, uh, beta is is how much you know, you're, you're going to be correl correlated with that index roughly. So for uh, S&P 500, if, if I'm an equity manager, Apple is six or 7% of the index. So if I don't have Apple, I got to have something that replicates Apple, Apple, which is very hard. In your world, the ag, Bloomberg ag index, it has a lot of duration, a lot of 20 year, 30 year bonds. Uh, and so the beta is, is kind of duration. So everywhere, the, the investment, the, the Bloomberg uh, um, that the index for bonds is is overweight duration, or or maybe it's it's uh, not overweight, but it's it has a lot of duration. It has it. a lot of duration, and 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 so the high yield market has typically had bonds that issue in the five to ten year tenor when they're when they're originally issued. The investment grade market can go out to thirty and even fifty years at times. So um, the AG covers you know the, is the broadest measure because that's covering everything the the investment grade indices themselves um you know are are, are going to look somewhat different than that because the ag will also have you know components of of all the other markets that are out there in there so um but we we use the ag as a benchmark however we're really absolute return focused so, so um, i i say benchmark agnostic and and from an investment standpoint, we are. We're aware of what's happening, and pretty much all of our uh, investors will look at us and compare us to some different type of index. They may look at us as a as a 
low risk, high yield fund. So they'll compare us to how the high yield index does. And they'll expect that what we should do is outperform significantly in down markets and probably lag a bit in up markets. They'll compare us to um, multi-sector bond funds and even to some alt credit funds. So we have some, we have, you know, data and scatter plots that show where we've performed against all those cohorts over, you know, a 20 year history. And we like what it shows. It shows that we shows us being above, at least in the middle to sometimes above on the return profile and far to the left, meaning much lower in terms of volatility and risk. So, um, I think it's a it's a good combo to have you know, those characteristics in the portfolio of of return in a fixed income portfolio because most of the people that are investing in fixed income are doing it to provide a stable component of their overall investment portfolio. If they want to add risk, they can certainly do that in equities or in commodities or some other asset class. Fixed income has historically been there as a more safe haven. And so we, we, when we, we created this fund, it was created by Carl and, uh, and the founder of our firm, John Osterweiss, to be the only fixed income fund that our investors would need. So we could actually have the flexibility to move into different parts of the market, depending on what the cycle was doing. Uh, now that the cycle we think is headed closer to recession, we're starting to shift more into higher quality investment grade and out of the high yield sector and Certainly within high yield, we've invested far away from the riskiest parts of the high yield market. So, and continue to do so. If you said you're getting right now yields in the investment grade world of, of 6% or even 7%, the two-year treasury is at 5%. So you're getting a spread of 100 to 200 basis points. Is that historically less of the spread uh, than the stuff you were investing in when when yields were were zero? You know, we we did not keep anywhere near as big a um, of an investment grade book when rates were low. We just never thought that there was any significant amount of value. There were periods in the past where we actually, um, we had moved uh, and started to move more uh, significantly into floating rate investment grade bonds. That was back in 2018, I believe, at, at a time when um, we started to see rates tick up. And so we thought that that was going to be an, a, a fruitful place to invest. Um that chain, you know, we had a few taper tantrums in there. And then of course with COVID, you know, hitting, we went back down to the, you know, to that essentially zero rate regime again. So, um, it, it worked out fine, but it just never, it wasn't quite as, uh, as positive a return that, that we would have hoped for, but we're, you know, we're always looking to, uh, to find ways that we can upgrade the quality of the portfolio if we can. Um, and that doesn't, always mean in ratings wise sometimes the rating agencies are extraordinarily slow to upgrade companies and there are some great companies out there that are, are you know have very very low leverage so, so not a tremendous amount of financial risk of us not getting paid back they just don't happen to be rated investment grade yet so um but yeah we you know we're like i said we we like to to be <laughs> positive on an absolute return basis we're not looking to take uh, a whole lot of risk. And one of the reasons um, in the big areas of the high yield market that we have been staying away from and been very, very vocal about as being the riskiest out there is the debt that exists as a result of the leverage buyouts. So uh, companies that are financed 
in the high yield market that are purchased by financial sponsors, whether it's KKR, Apollo, TPG, Platinum Equity, um, they've issued huge amounts of debt and make up a very large cohort of the high yield indices. And we have invested far away from them because we feel and have felt for the last five or six years that that part of the market at some point is going to bust apart because the sponsors have been able to tilt the tables so far in their favor that the uh, historical covenants and documents, the way they were drafted to protect bondholders and lenders, um, they're like Swiss cheese right now. You can throw them out the window. In fact, we, I, I, will, I won't name the people, but we just had breakfast uh, last week with a couple leveraged finance bankers from one of the top five underwriting banks in high yield. And they conceded that it's not really even worthwhile to look at the documents of any LBO transaction anymore because the sponsors can pretty much do whatever they want at, to benefit their equity at the expense of bondholders and lenders. So, so with that in mind, I don't know why I would ever lend you know, to a company that's owned by a financial sponsor whose uh, incentives are nowhere near aligned with ours as a bond and a bond investor. Um, they're going to look to take as much money out in the form of dividends and return it to themselves and to their LPs as quickly as possible. And it will come at my expense as a bondholder and my investors. So um, we see it over and over again. And we're very fortunate because we're not benchmark oriented. So we don't have to buy these bonds, but many of the high yield uh, benchmark strategies, they, they're forced to buy because these are big parts of the high yield index. And so, you know, if, as you read in the paper about the, the coming problems in the, in the junk market, as people like to call it, um, a lot of those problems will come out of that cohort. And it's because they're the most highly levered. And uh, at the time that they were issued, they were issued with the uh, future hope of these fabulous synergies from the acquisition or cost cutting that the sponsors were going to be able to put in place. You know, 90% of the time, those never actually materialized to the magnitude at which they're supposed to. And then we're left with uh, you know, a company that's got higher leverage than probably was stated at the time of issuance. Um, typically, we'll have a large swath of first lien term debt which is floating rate. So now that rates have risen significantly in the last 18 months, that, that part of the cap stack is costing them significantly more in terms of interest expense. So we've got a highly levered company and the, the wheel's starting to spin faster here because their interest expense is growing. You get into a period in the economy when things start to slow down and all of a sudden um, these, we think these things are, are going to bust apart. If they do, the financial sponsor has lots of flexibility to do what they want to do. And we as bondholders would be just stuck sitting there waiting and saying, all right, well, not, not a whole lot we can do. We've seen some bad actors out there do things that are very detrimental to bondholders, um, causes bond prices to trade down sharply. Um, and, you know, we just never wanted to be in that spot. So um, we'd like to invest away from that cohort for sure. That is, is fascinating. So you, you use the term uh, LBO, leverage buyout, borrowing money to take a company private. Uh, that term now is, is called private equity, which you'll probably will be much more, more familiar with. So when you know I and uh, you know some, some of our viewers who track the public markets you know, fairly regularly, is it fair to say that 
uh, the the that what we think of as the publicly traded stocks, and then we can look at their their debt structures. That there's a whole part of the market that is something of a black box to us because it's it's owned by private equity companies, and those bonds are are publicly traded. Would those bonds be in you know high yield ETFs as well, or, or stuff like that? Absolutely. And if I look at the the components in the uh, you know some of the big high yield ETFs, the the, the number. The number three uh, component of HYG is Medline. Medline is a um, medical uh, equipment company that was LBO'd, very, very large company, you know, fa was family owned, was LBO'd uh, two years ago. And uh, so the number three holding is an LBO. Uh, and then there's several of them here in the top 10 that are, um, that are LBO financing. So yes, uh, it's a, it's a decent sized chunk. Uh, I, you know, I don't have the exact number, but I'm sure it's got to be at least 15% uh, or so of the market and maybe even larger. And those bonds are typically only bought and sold directly by professionals. And it's because uh, the market is made up of sort of, again, two cohorts. We have public publicly issued bonds, which are registered securities and other bonds that are issued under what's called Rule 144A. And 144A stipulates that unless you're a qualified institutional buyer or um, really an institution, you can't buy those bonds. So you and I can't buy 144A debt as individuals. Um, it's just a, it's a rule that was set up by the, by the uh, government to protect um, individual investors who may not be as sophisticated from you know, getting taken in a private security transaction. For the most part, these 144As are public securities, right? From an, from an institutional standpoint, they trade, they look, they smell like public securities, but individuals can't own them. So, but individuals do own them by way of the mutual funds or the ETFs that they own personally. So uh, th those, are in, those are in there. And I would venture to say that if they weren't part of the index, there are a lot of people out there that would say, I would not want to buy this in my fund and I don't want to own it because I, I just either I don't like the sponsor, I don't like the structure, I don't like the company, but they're forced to do that. And it's, it's one of the things that makes me happiest and certainly makes my partners happiest is that we don't have to do that. It, it's, I mean, that, that puts anybody in a bad position. Imagine if you're running a portfolio and, and 15 or 20 percent of your portfolio is, is full of names that you don't want to own. But because you're being forced to compete with that index, you've got to own this stuff. So um, that's essentially what's happening out there in the investment world. Indexation has really hurt fixed income investors, I think, overall, because it's it's taken away from many portfolio managers the ability to to discriminate against the things that we don't want to own and focus on the things that we do. And that's what we're so, what makes me so happy. And we're so fortunate that the way our fund was structured 20 years ago allows us to do just that. And that's kind of why we only populate our fund with things that we want to own and we can eschew all the things that we don't. Was there a time where this um, uh, LBO debt was attracted to you. You're you're being compensated with with an, a, enough uh, spread, and and also that you had uh, um, a more covenants. And if so, what is, what has changed over time? Describe the process of the 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 things get a little bit looser, rates go lower, private equity performs as an asset class, it it gets more trusted, and then also tell us about you know why is it Swiss uh, Swiss cheese? How are the <laughs> incentives uh, not aligned? Is, is, it, is it called a you know a div dividend recapitalization? And then also the Financial Times. 
it's a it's an acronym CFO at the it's a uh, um, something financial uh, consolidated financial obligation. I, I don't think that's that's right, but it's basically a, a packaged security of that's collateralized to oh, to fund oh. itself. And you know, of course, you, oh, you, you mean saw, like, a, like the CLO, the CLO market you're talking about, or the? Uh, no, no, it's uh it's collateralized financial obligation or, or something where it's a, it's a new security. Historically, when, when, when this first actually happened, there were lots of, there were lots of protections that were written into, into, um, indentures and, and, uh, protecting lenders and bondholders. So think about the evolution of the market. What's really fascinating is if you go back, um, go back 15 years before, CLOs or collateralized loan obligations really came into being, the primary lender of term loans were the banks. And that would be JP Morgan, Citi, Bank America. So the banks were your primary bank lenders. And historically, they made loans. Loans aren't officially securities, they're loans. They they had what's called a term loan A, and then something else called a term loan B. And in addition, then they would also provide revolving lines of credit, revolvers. So the term loan A is, it, it still exists in, in, in a much smaller way, but a term loan A is a bond, is a, is a loan that us, usually has a floating rate. It used to be based off LIBOR, now off SOFR, and would also have an amortization schedule, somewhat similar to you know, your standard mortgage on a home, right? You'd, you'd have to pay down some of the principal periodically, um, that, that, um, uh, periodicity would be subject to whatever the, the lender would ask of, of the borrower and the borrower, and they would negotiate as to what in fact they could do and what made sense. But the lender really would look at the borrower's business and, and under, try to understand how much room and flexibility they needed to give them, but yet draft covenants that would protect them such that if the borrower started to sort of diverge from where from from where they were either business went downhill they started to engage in more risky activities or let's say a whole new management team came in during the tenor of this loan and the new management team said you know we're going to go out on an acquisition spree well the the lenders would actually have the ability to kind of say mm, can't do that you know we're we're boxing you in a little bit you, you we've let to you on this premise if you're changing the premise you got to come back to us and renegotiate the terms of this transaction so that's what started. Uh, that's where the, the business started. That changed as CLOs came into vogue. CLOs became the buyers of those loans. And that's where the term loan B market really evolved. And term loan B market is same obligation as term loan A, but without the amortization requirement. So essentially, it's a loan that you just pay interest on, and then you've got a balloon repayment at some point in the future. You can pay it down periodically if you like, if you have extra capital and you want to sort of pay that off, you know, that's fine. It's prepayable. Um, but you know, the, the idea was we now have these new buyers and these buyers at CLOs, they're not the banks. They're buying small pieces of these loans. They're not <clears throat> requiring as much um, covenant protection because essentially they're, they're almost viewing these loans like they would a bond, right? We have this whole portfolio of stuff. We're going to put it in here. We look at it in aggregate, we go out and we borrow our liabilities against that. And that's how we fund this pool to buy these loans. And with that, there, there was this natural erosion that's happened in these covenant protections. 
And the, the CLOs didn't need them the same way because you didn't have this one big chunk. You know, you'd have JP Morgan with 500 million of this loan on their books and saying, you guys better come in here because you're not behaving well. So they didn't have well, a lot of, they had skin in the game, but not nearly as much as JP Morgan. Yeah, the, 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 the banks, you know, if we fast forward today, the banks are, are loan arrangers. They tend not to be loan, they're not, they're not lenders. They're, they arrange loans, they collect a fee, and then they pass these loans on largely to CLOs. CLOs have grown in, in such grand scale that they are really the primary buyer of most, uh, certainly most leveraged finance corporate term loans. And, and so if we think about the financial sponsors, as they look at, at they're buying a company, they're trying to find how much, you know, capital do we have to put in? Where, where can we generate the highest IRR? And that would be with the lowest amount of equity capital. So let's see how far we can push, how much leverage will guys give us? How much will they require for us to keep in terms of skin in the game? Uh, you know, before they say, no, we're not going to lend anymore. So as the CLO market really took off, the the sponsors said, well, this is actually kind of great because we used to have these maintenance covenants that we'd have to maintain with our bank and said, oh, if we get over five times levered, they're calling us back in and saying, all right, we're going to have to do something. We're going to renegotiate. Bank's going to do something to trap cash and prevent us from having the flexibility we want. Fast forward to, to where we are now, the CLOs, don't have that same stick. They don't have the same um, incentives to call people in. So the sponsors said, wow, let, let's do as much as we can in this term loan market because it's the cheapest funding for us. We can sell to these CLOs. We'll ju they'll just keep, they keep raising new funds. So they're just going to keep rolling this debt. You know, we never really have to worry about paying it down. We just keep it out there. And it's the cheapest cost of capital for us. And that's what happened during the entire, you know, post-financial crisis period. Very inexpensive. LIBOR fell to essentially zero. Now, in some cases, you know, the, the, the uh, lenders would require a 1% LIBOR floor. But let's say, you know, they'd say, all right, LIBOR plus 350. If you were a, uh, you know, B plus rated company, you could get 4.5% term loan. And you can get that for the, the you know, the the most senior secured part of your capital structure. And that might take you from zero down to as much as, you know, t historically the banks would only want to lend to you, you know, one and a half to two times levered through their, um, through their term loan A's. Well, in the CLO world, you know, that's kind of disappeared. And now we've got three and a half, four, four and a half, sometimes even five times leverage at the term loan level. Great for the financial sponsor because that's his cheapest cost of capital, um, but not so great for the bondholder who then starts at five times leverage and beyond and then has to you know, be part of that whole cap stack. So um, the the evolution, though, really was, was precipitated by the, the growth in the CLO market. And then just over time, you know, some of these deals were fine. Bankruptcies were low. Um, we had a a very long run of extremely low bankruptcies because financial conditions were so easy for so long. Rates were incredibly low. Uh, and as a result, bondholders became more complacent. Now, some of the indexation in the market also has played into that, right? Because, um, you know, somebody at BlackRock is, has got a fund that's benchmarked against, you know, the high yield index. And this LB big, you know, multi-billion dollar LBO deal comes with a lot of debt. He can't really say, eh, you know, I 
can't buy that. I don't want, I don't want to buy that. I've got to buy it because it's a big part of my index. And if I don't, I'm, I'm essentially short that name to the index. So uh, the combination of indexation and CLOs has, has eroded these financial protections. Uh, passive is another, you know, I mean, the ETFs, they, 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 they have no vote essentially there. They won't vote on covenants. They won't negotiate or argue about you know, covenants or lack thereof because they don't really have a, any kind of financial interest. They're just sort of mirroring the index. That's all they're providing. So they don't have a, they don't, they don't ever look at the world as how they win or lose. They just are, you know, trying to help you keep pace with an index. And as a result, it makes it easier to issue debt with fewer and fewer covenants. So um, it's, it hasn't been a pleasant path. My partners and I are, are, you know, I, I, I say we're, I'm like the Lorax out there from Dr. Seuss, right? I'm, I'm standing up there screaming, this, this structure stinks. This is horrible. You know, we shouldn't allow this to happen because as a bondholder, I'd love nothing more than have great protections out here for myself and for all my other fellow bondholders, because that protects all our investors and protects the asset class. And if the asset class deteriorates to nothing more than a coupon and a promise to repay, you know, that doesn't necessarily lead to, a, you know, a, a whole host of great outcomes for everybody across that asset class. And that's what we kind of concern ourselves with as we, you know, look at each individual security and say, you know, are we getting the right amount of protection here? If we don't have it in the form of covenants, then we need to have it in the form of very low leverage or in a really defensible business. Uh, and it certainly does make us, you know, get more and more and more vigilant and rigorous in our analysis of each one of our companies. And how much of this term A, term B debt is floating rate debt? Uh, that's all floating rate debt. Okay, all floating so, rate debt. And does it reset immediately? It has some uh, reset period. They're they're, they're they're quarterly resets. Usually quarterly resets um, every now and then. Some can be semi annual, but they're generally quarterly resets on those. So as rates go up, you know, you, you, you just start to see, you know, ticking along the way, you'll see the, the, the cost of that capital every, every, you know, we see it in, in all the companies that have significant amounts of term loan debt outstanding. We just looked over the last year and a half at the interest expense and interest expense numbers have gone up astronomically. So one of the other important parts here of, of why this has happened is when we were in a market environment that was, you know, very benign, very, um, Fed was very accommodative and money was very easy. Um, the, the ability for a high yield company to have significant interest coverage, right? So, you know, what, what is your interest coverage? How much, you know, what, how many times are you covering your interest expense? Is, is a, is in a terms of EBITDA? It's, yes, and is a measure of of sort of financial security and financial well being, and when high yield companies who had historically been issuing bonds at ten or eleven percent, all of a sudden were able to issue at five, or four, or even three percent, um, it's much easier to have this huge spread in which you're covering you know your interest. So you went from two times interest coverage to five times. Wow, these guys can handle this debt load really easily. So what then happened is we had what's what I call leverage creep, and in leverage creep, you know, a, a, an old friend of mine told me about he was about I think it must be twenty five years ago now. He said, you know, 
high yield companies and leverage companies cannot exist for long periods of time at six times leverage. Now we were in a market environment where you know they were they were paying ten or eleven percent on their debt. He said, but six times leverage, it just eats you up. The interest costs eat you up too fast. If you're if you get to that point, you've got to really do something quickly to get yourself back in shape. And six times was sort of always an historic problem area. We saw some LBOs getting done at you know nine, ten, eleven times leverage real leverage, not what was necessarily what they call this adjusted leverage, because you know there's a lot of these adjustments to EBITDA that uh, financial engineers use now. Uh, very, very fancy and uh, good for them, but you know we don't necessarily buy a lot of the adjustments that they want us to sign off on. But it was much easier to do that at very low coupon rates. Well, if you were levered seven times and all of a sudden rates have now, you know, screamed higher and you had a lot of term loan debt, you're not covering your interest costs all that easily anymore. And that seven times starts to get really, really painful in the current rate environment. So um, I think what we're going to see going forward, and we've already started to see it, is is a lower tolerance for highly leveraged transactions. Uh, And that's really where the financial sponsors live. So we haven't seen, if you've noticed that we haven't seen a lot of M&A activity and certainly not a lot of issuance in the high yield market by these LBO transactions. It's largely because they can't figure out how can we get the same amount of leverage that we had in the past and make it work and still generate the IRRs on the equity that we're buying. You know, I started this podcast actually pretty much exactly two, two years ago. And that was at a time when interest rates were at zero. And pretty much the entire time that the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates, folks have been telling me that the economy can't handle it, that uh, something's going to break, uh, but at, you know we stand here two years later. Interest rates are five point five percent, and not a lot has broken. Uh, not, nothing systemic has broken. And you know now, with the benefit of hindsight, everyone knows it now. You know very few people knew it then. But uh, uh, you know the the house uh, um, the households termed out their their debt. Uh, you know with very low coupon mortgage, they refied in twenty twenty. You know I've talked to people who have a, you know two percent mortgage rate. Um, corporates, uh, cor- corporations, they borrowed a, a very long duration. So that, that investment grade market issued, as you said, 30 year, 50 year bonds. I remember, you know, Amazon reading about Amazon borrowing f- at 40 years. So those, you know, so I've been, I've been struggling to find where is the pain of the higher rates. And it, it sounds like, uh, we've, we were talking about it right now. That's, that's where the pain is. What, if any hedging goes on with these companies, are they, are they, t- mm. you know, Taking, they're taking a lot of interest rate risk because as interest rates go up, their, their cost is going to go up. Do they enter in some sort of swap to to protect against that risk or, or what? I, I've tried a, l- a little bit to find that and uh, I haven't really found much. Some have, some have nowhere near as many as they th- as thought they would. And, and you know, you would think here when the Fed started raising rates and say like, all right, gosh, any CFO who has a, a huge floating rate component should be out here looking at swaps. Problem is, is the minute that happens, the, the cost of those swaps started to get very expensive. They're like, ah, oh, we're not going to pay for that. We'll just ride it out because, you know, this won't go so far. Because that, that, that's essentially what happened. The cost of those swaps became very expensive. So if you didn't do it at, at the time you had the opportunity to, you just left it alone. Um, but there were actually some, you know, the, the guys who actually did, if I think about a cohort that did, ex- did a, a great job, a bunch of... Um, double high B or double B rated companies came to market late 2020, 
um, throughout 2021. And they started to issue, there was this trend in high yield. They started to extend. So historically, high yield was a five to seven to eight year market. And they started to issue some 10-year bonds. And the 10-year bonds were, were largely, uh, the only people that would, were, you know, were really able to get it were the, the stronger credits, so double Bs. And some of these were um, four type coupons. Some of them were three type coupons. There was even one issued by Ball Corporation, the guys that make um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, metal containers and and uh, cups they did it they did a 10-year bond with two and seven ace coupon wow and we said great for them that that cfo should get paid a fortune because that's going to be fantastic financing for them and here we are fast forward today i want to say those the, the buyers of those bonds you know we they they were part of an index right um and uh let me just see where these are the buyers of those bonds uh, those their ball two and seven A's to 2030 that were issued in 2020. Those bonds are now trading at 77. So those guys have collected three years of uh, of coupon, you know, so call it a little under nine points, um, and they've lost 23 points on the bonds. Right, so down 14 points. Now those bonds are double B plus rated. They're going to pay off, and you know, for you know that that's a fairly interesting piece of paper. Um, it's the duration's too long for us to be invested in. But if we were in a different interest rate regime, I'd find that to be very fascinating to be able to buy this debt at 77 cents in the dollar that I would feel very strongly that I'm going to get paid off. But the coupon is so low, um, you know, a fantastic job financing their business. So what, what, what these double B companies did is they took all their near term financing risk off the table and extended that out and bought themselves a lot of runway. Part of the reason why you say things haven't broken is is many companies did in fact see this coming and positioned themselves for a higher rate environment. They knew that the end of free money was approaching, and those that did really set themselves up well and created an awful lot of flexibility. The ones that didn't, that are you know we're reading articles today about about the uh, um, the refinancing wall that's coming, and everybody's worried about the refinancing wall. Um, we've heard about refinancing walls, uh, you know, walls of maturity that, that, uh, uh, have been out there for 30 years. There's always a wall that's coming up. There's always a wall. They'll come to market, you know, somebody, there'll be ways around it. There's so much cash that's out in the market, whether it's public markets here or private credit. If you're a good company, you're going to figure out a way to get yourself financed. And there's going to be somebody who's going to be willing to do it for you. If you're a lousy company with too much leverage, you know, you may have some problems. Okay, so uh, some companies hedge, and, and the best hedge is just to issue long duration rather than issuing, you know, floating and having to enter the swaps. But what about that that market we were talking about earlier, the LBO debt market? Companies that were taken private by private equity. Some may may have hedged, but but not a large component. I, I, a friend of mine who works at a at a, uh, a pretty big lending bank in the southeastern U.S. and they do a lot of revolving credit facilities. It told me that on their book. When they when you know they they lend uh, the revolver side of the business they you know they're not lending term loan bees, uh, but he said on their book I think his number was under fifteen percent of the companies that had borrowed in the term loan B market had swapped out their fixed their floating ex- rate exposure for fixed so there's a large group and and as I said we've seen it you know we just look at the quarterly numbers and the quarterly interest expense numbers you know go through the roof and there's no offset. Um, on the fixed side for them, uh, you know, in terms of the swap. So uh, it's gotten much more painful. And if you've, if your business has been good and you've been able to generate cash, 
then the thing that you should be doing is is paying down some of that debt as it's gotten much more expensive and or you know terming it out depending on the price to, to try to just get it out you know extend it out much farther into the future um, but you know today it, it would have cost you three or four percent you know a year and a half ago to do that and today it might cost you seven or eight what do you think happens to the private equity industry and investors in these, these private equity funds? You know, my, my, my personal feeling, okay, and, and, and I, I think, pri- I think the, the, the halcyon days for private equity are done. Right? I just think they're done. You know, it, it, do I, would I go out and say private equity is toast? No. That's, but um, look, we've had a 20-year run. Private equity guys have done fabulously well. You can note... What I do know in all my years in this business, um, I've operated in a few different leverage strategies. And you cannot run a leverage strategy uh, the same way when you've got 5% interest rates versus when you have zero. You know, the leverage strategies just have to give up the return. So private equity is a leverage strategy. Okay, It works great at very, very low rates. It doesn't work as great when rates are this high because they just can't generate the IRR. So anybody who's allocating money, you know, we, I, I constantly read about, uh, excuse me, I read about uh, pension funds and CIOs of, you know, big state funds and, and college uh, endowments, you know, allocating to new, new money to private equity. And I said, you know what, you guys are looking in the rear view mirror. What, the returns of the past are not here. The minute we've gone from, zero to five percent on the 10 year you know the ability for these guys to generate those those 20 percent plus irrs is gone they can't do it right because there's a lot more money out there in the market it's chasing these deals the deals are very competitive the prices that they'd have to pay to get to actually get companies to sell are too high and then they they can't put the amount of leverage on them to generate the types of returns on the underlying equity that they would like to, and the cost of that leverage is higher. So they've got so many things, you know, that they're facing headwind-wise. Um, and I think what you're you're going to see there's going to be a generation of private equity, you know, uh, uh, partners and and principals who have done fabulously well for the last 10, 15, 20 years. They're all going to sail off into the sunset and and live well and hand the keys off to the next generation and. and you know, the business will evolve into something else. But, you know, if you look back, think about the hedge funds, right? Hedge funds, the same thing happened. I, I, I was very fortunate to be at the very, very forefront of sort of the hedge fund, you know, evolution and creation. My years, uh, my partner, Carl, and I both worked together. And when we met, we were working in the convertible bond business at Merrill Lynch back in the 90s. And that was when the hedge fund game really started to take off because convertible ARB is a, is a natural, it's a fantastic product for the, the hedge fund community because you're long the senior asset in the capital structure, you're short the junior asset in the capital structure, you've got this positive convexity where you're able to, you know, to, to short stock, more stock as it goes high, as the stock goes higher, buy it in as it comes lower, trade along that convexity and capture volatility and lever that strategy up very, very highly to produce incredibly high returns that were non-correlated with the market. So a bunch of assets came flying in. And those used to be two and 20 strategies, right? The two and 20, meaning 2% management fee and 20% of the returns that the manager used to be able to, to keep. 
people would give them money on those terms because the returns they were producing were fantastic. More money comes to the market, opportunities you know, shrink over time, what happens? They have to start looking into different asset classes, other, other ways to sort of generate returns. Um, it's not as easy to do, you can't get as much leverage. What happens? Overall hedge fund returns, you know, they become more disparate. Some guys do really well, other guys do really poorly. So what happens? Well, they're not as special. When, when you have 20 hedge funds out there that, that you can invest in, okay, you can command two and 20 very easily. When there are thousands, right, and they're no longer that special, why would I pay two and 20? If somebody really had something unique, I might pay for it, but everybody else, no, I would pay a lot less for it. And that's essentially what's happened in the hedge fund market. It's gotten, it's gotten very commoditized. There are still pockets um, of, of the market that where guys still do quite well uh, and are able to command those fees. But you know, overall, you, you see the returns kind of dissipate. The, the, the guys that produce great returns aren't true hedge funds. A lot of those guys are taking big directional bets or leveraging big directional bets and producing different types of returns. And that's fine. The private equity world is going to kind of going through the same thing because there used to be, you know, few dozen private equity shops. I mean, there are thousands of them around the world right now, and they're all scouring the market and looking at the same companies. And, you know, they used to be able to buy companies uh, and negotiate and, and buy companies. Well, now the way they buy them is in an auction. I mean, if you're buying them in an auction, chances are you're not getting a bargain. You know, you're competing with a whole bunch of other people who have the same financial incentives as you do. Um, a lot of smart analysts doing work, figuring out where we can finance this. And all you're doing is trying to, you know, outguess the other guy as to what it is that I'm going to have to pay to get this into my portfolio. So um, I'm not particularly sanguine on the outlook for private equity as an investment, as an asset class. The next thing that's coming along is private credit. And private credit is just a natural offshoot that these guys are trying to grow because many of the private equity shops realize, well, shoot, I, I can't raise as much money in private equity. Some of these smart people actually really get that I'm not going to be able to produce those kind of returns anymore. So let me give them a credit option that's going to be slightly lower return, but more stable. Um, and there's an awful lot of money that's flooded into that market very quickly as well. Um, just how big is the growth in, in private credit? I know it's big, but, but just how big? I, I mean... I, I, I don't even think I can put a number on it because there's so many pockets of private credit. You have, you know, the, the, the original, I don't want to say the original, but in the last 15 years, the, the, main, the main bucket of private credit has been the BDCs mm -hmm. and the BDCs, business development companies that, you know, like an Aries Capital, um, you know, as one, um, those are um, the most visible and you know they've done this for a long time and financed these companies on a private basis. But they're See, also they, they're they're public, right? They're they're public companies, yeah. So Aries Capital is symbol yeah. as ARCC, and they they're quite leveraged. They borrow money. They borrow money in the markets, yeah. But you know Aries borrows. Aries is an investment grade company. It's got a ten billion dollar equity market cap. They've they've produced really good returns over a long period of time. You know the stock the the common stock there yields. Um, Yields ten percent. Um, you know, so the they, business they, not Aries the company, but the business. The this is Aries Capital Corp. Yes, yep. this is their business development corp, the BDC, and it yields ten percent. So, you know, if, if somebody wanted that exposure to, to private credit and and was a smaller investor, you can get it going to the BDCs. 
Aries or Prospect Capital. Many of these BDCs have been out in the market for many, many years. They've been consistent dividend payers. There's certainly been volatility in the underlying equity. There's good times to buy and times not to buy. But um, that's where it all started. And now we're, we're in an entirely different regime where, you know, huge, huge uh, sums of, of money is being raised and allocated privately in, in different types of vehicles. Some of these vehicles require people to lock money up for two, three, five. I've even heard as long as 10 years. Um, and in the last few years, again, when there wasn't a lot of yield around for traditional fixed income strategies, whether they were investment grade or high yield, these guys were able to produce returns that were in excess of that. And so they continued to attract more money. Defaults were low. Um, they, they also were running a leverage strategy. So they were borrowing money as well as the money that investors gave them to kind of juice returns up. Uh, and some of them produced 10, 11, 12, you know, some cases even higher uh, percent annual returns. So money's poured in there. Um, again, that at so faster than just about any other asset class I've seen in terms of the overall growth. Now, it's not all homogenized in the sense that some are very specific in the types of um, transactions they do. We, I've seen them that are you know, an infrastructure fund. So they're, they're just doing investments in, uh, it could be in toll roads, it could be in um, uh, gas pipelines, right? So they're very focused industry-wise. Others are, are more focused in terms of size and scale. So we have at the very bottom end, guys will only deal as 20 million and under, or at the top, you have an Apollo or KKR or sort of Blue Owl, who are kind of three, or Aries, three of the big guys there, who are looking to actually usurp the banks in their roles as the underwriters of LBO debt. And they said, well, what we can do is we can actually write billion dollar checks for you guys and provide you with that backstop financing you need in order to get your LBO done. So, And hold on to it and not, not sell it. The concept of private credit is it's, it's extraordinarily broad. It's much broader than, you know, than anybody thinks. And I, I mean, there, I'm sure there are many, many facets of it that I haven't even seen um, uh, out there. And, you know, I'm in the market every day. So um, if my, my concern about private credit is that, if people, you know, this, some, some of it will work out fine. Um, some of it won't. And if you are an investor and you put money into a private credit fund um, that requires you to lock it up, well, you may get decent returns. But if you turn around and decide, all right, I, I want to get out, um, in order to sell it, you may have to go to a secondaries broker who will, who will come in and bid you down 15 or 20% from the net asset value in order to get out. So you're going to give away a couple of years of, of income to do that. And as I look at the public markets where we live today, you know, the high yield market here is almost a 9%, um, you know, market. You can invest in a public mutual fund, get 9% and have daily liquidity. It doesn't make a lot of sense for me to tie up money in, in private credit that's much more opaque, hard to assess and analyze, um, very limited liquidity, when the public markets are now giving you a much more attractive view. And by the way, if you want to get take you know no risk, go ahead. You can buy treasuries at, at over five percent at the short end. You can buy, mm. you know, today the uh, the two year is. Uh, Five point two. Your treasury is five percent, and uh, 
you know, six month treasury bills at, uh, at you know, five and a quarter. Um, you can roll treasury bills for a while and say, I'll hang out and get that. So that, that's my concern with private credit as, a, as an investment case today. Um, the asset class, though, is going to be around. It'll be around for a long time. Um, there are some guys in it that are very, very good. And then there are some other people in it who are um, visitors and they're sort of newer to the market. And I think they're going to have a harder time both sourcing deals and um, you know continuing to raise capital. If so many people are getting into private equity, there, there should be a lot of liquidity. But is it fair to say that the liquidity in the loan market is not great, at least compared to you know, two years ago? And how come you know you see some uh, private credit CEOs or investment officers on, on Bloomberg talking about I'm so excited about this opportunity you know to get 12% yields? How is it that the the, the liquidity is, is so bad and the opportunity is so great supposedly if everyone's doing it? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> so I don't know somebody somebody's made up a somebody's spinning a better yarn than I can spin I guess about why the opportunity is so great. The industry we're in is is full of people who are who are you know deft marketers, right? They've been out and able to go out and market and spin a story and uh, tell a great story and raise money and hopefully you know invest in such a way that they that that their investment returns mimic you know the the spin that they put on their story when they're raising money. Um, and I think that's some of it here in in, in what. Is, is leading people to private credit. But I do think that the fact that we haven't seen a lot of defaults um, will continue to bolster private credit. Um, it, it, it's always going to be easier in the rear view mirror to, to say, oh, it was really good or it was really bad. In my opinion just happens to be someone who's sitting here and been investing in these markets for all these years. And I've seen the fads come and go, right? We, we were talking about this when SPACs were blowing up here two years ago. I, I was I were losing my mind as, as I'm watching this. I'm going, okay, so you're going to launch a SPAC and you're going to make Shaquille O'Neal one of the SPAC guys. You're like, yeah, well, let me tell, tell me what Shaq's investment acumen is here that somebody should just give Shaq a bunch of money to go out and find you know, company and, and, you know, be on the, the board of this to, uh, to do some kind of deal. I mean, BODY it's, I think it's trading less than a dollar. Yeah. Yeah. It was nuts at the time, but you know, that, that was, you know, the economics of, of the SPAC deals were just crazy. In fact, we had, we had a, you know, we had a portfolio company that um, one of our, that, that a SPAC came the SPACs were kind of looking at and uh, like, no, we, we can't do this because it'll, it'll destroy the equity and sure, you know, Sure as heck, you, you can see any company that's even even some real legitimate companies that are out there that were bought by SPACs, they still trade with this SPAC taint on them. They all trade at discounts to what their probably regular public market values would be just because they came as a SPAC, even though, you know, that that might have been, you know, two, three, four, five years ago. That SPAC taint just stays with them forever. Yeah, well, maybe the the fail rate, the bankruptcy rate of SPACs that went public, it could be, it's, it's high. It's very high. Yeah. Well, there was an incentive. Look, the guys that, that if you funded a SPAC, it cost the, the guys to start them probably a couple million dollars of their own money. So they were incentivized to try to find a deal. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was the, the, the owner's share of the equity and of the economics that they got were astronomical. So if they found any deal, even if it didn't work well, 
they were still going to be able to generate great economics for themselves. Forget about whatever anybody else ended up with it. You know, that yep. was the residual holders. So and oh, oh, it went from ten dollars to two dollars. It's it's going to it's a buy. Well, the cost basis for the founders in, in the sponsors yeah. is like seven no, cents. It was so. de minimis, right? Yeah. It was de minimis. Yeah, you know, and and so again, going back to what we were talking about, it's, it's, you know, there's always this latest new, new thing. Private credit is the new, new thing, right? SPACs were the new, new thing for a while. Um, private equity was the new, new thing, you know, when it, when it really started to explode and, and you had, you know, a few different situations that were producing really good returns here, you know, back in the early 2000s. Private credit is because, because you're getting paid a coupon, Right, it, it's going to generate. They're 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 going to generate some okay returns as long as we don't have significant credit events. The returns will be at least okay, and they could actually be quite good. Um, the only question is, what's the portfolio quality look like? We just don't know. I mean, you don't get the same kind of transparency in knowing what you know where each of these um, where each of these guys are lending. Now, maybe there are some that are going to be extremely transparent. I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm not privy to the, the portfolio disclosures of, of a lot of these guys. Um, and of course, there are some that are going to be better underwriters, just like there are you know, at any of the banks, right? So this is essentially what it's kind of turning into. The banks are no longer going to be in the game. And what, what, what's kind of risky for them is if these private credit guys completely usurp them, I'm not sure what purpose we have to have the banks out there in the leveraged finance world at all. You know, right now they're just collecting fees for arranging and syndicating loans. Private private credit guys might start doing that and competing with them. You know, they may say, all right, well, you know, we don't want to own this whole thing, so let's syndicate it out and let's see if we can, you know, get some of this out here to the uh, the CLO guys or you know some other cohort that wants to buy a piece of those loans. Uh, what do you think on the financial sector and particularly like banks, bank stocks, the, the business of, of banking where credits, uh, uh, losses are coming up, but from a very low level and also their deposits are going down, deposit costs are, are, are going up as, you know, pri- private credit is eating their lunch, whether that's a good lunch or not, whether it's a lunch you want to have their, their lunch is being eaten. It's worrisome. Um, it was, you know, I mean, it's worrisome. I, we don't we don't have any in investments at all in, in deposit taking institutions because of that. And we, you know, we saw. I I was I saw up close and personal. I saw what happened with uh, Washington Mutual when it failed. You know, in, during the financial crisis, I watched that collapse. I was trading the bonds, um, both uh, you know the the opco and holdco debt of that when it was kind of coming unraveled. It was amazing. And did those bonds both go to zero? They didn't. There were still assets, I think, in the, if I remember. I think the Holdco actually held up okay, but the Opcos collapsed and 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 didn't. So, um, but I can't recall the the ultimate um, unwind and the ultimate recovery in, in the Wamu paper. But what happened was seventeen billion dollars was withdrawn from the institution in I think eleven days. Something like that was the number. In the case of um, of First Republic, the number was something like forty billion dollars in twenty four hours. Silicon Valley Bank, yeah, with Silicon Valley Bank, yeah, Silicon Valley, and then First Republic was First Republic also, you know, bore a lot of that as well. But but to to see that much money come out that quickly, you know, the structure of banking has changed. The ability to to you know. Make make and withdraw money on your cell phone that exists today 
did not exist in the days of the whammo unwind. So people used to have to actually go to the bank in order to get the money out. Today, they didn't. It just it came out that rapidly. So that that kind of was a real eye opener to us about the risk in deposit taking institutions. Right? And um, um, if, if it, things can unravel that quickly, um, then you know you really have to step back and think about the, the whole structure of banking today and, and what it is and, and what it means. Um, they, they have fewer lines of business that are going to be as profitable as they used to have. Right? So securities underwriting fees are actually lower, um, which is, is disincentivizing them from making principal investments on that basis. So they don't want to own loans on their balance sheet. They just want to originate, collect the fee and move on. Um, so the durability, I think of the franchises really starts to be called into question. Um, do we need them, you know, the same way that we used to, I'm not sure that, that we do. Um, so it's a little bit troubling. We also know that there's certainly going to be a lot more regulation coming down the pipe, right? There's, there's got to be on the back of something like Silicon Valley bank and, and signature and, and first Republic. Of course, there's going to be some more regulatory overlay in order to protect um, the depositors and or, um, you know, just the, the investors in general from something like this happening. So the banks are going to be required now to operate with much tighter risk controls, and that will reduce their overall returns and profitability ultimately. So net net, you know, I think banking is going to be in for you know a pretty tough road for kind of quite a while. It's not an area of real expertise nor focus for us from an investment standpoint. Uh, right now, the much of the treasury yield curve is inverted, although it's exiting inverted inversion. What about the credit spread curve? Like, is it more expensive to borrow now or in 10 years? So from a spread basis, believe it or not, it's it's fairly flat. Um, it, you know, it's probably a touch tighter here at the front end than it has been. But we look at it, we like to look at things much more on a, just an absolute yield basis as to, you know, and where we're investing. I use spreads much more as a barometer for me to understand what the market's risk tolerances are. And when we go into sort of more of a risk on or risk off, are we in a, you know, neutral spot? Are we in a very um, risk on market or very risk off? Right now we're sort of, uh, we're still a little bit risk on, although it's been coming off in the last month, right? So we're moving back more into sort of the neutral phase as, as the uh, markets overall have really been, you know, correcting here for the last uh, about 40, 45 days. Um, but, you know, on, a, on an absolute return basis, what's interesting is, is if we can find, again, these attractive yields at the front end, I don't have to go out too far. And there are certain cases where, you know, I'm, I'm able to buy bonds that I'm, right now I'm, you know, looking at something I'm trying to buy right now that's a double B plus company at seven and three quarter percent for 18 months. And um, their 2029 paper also traded seven and three quarter percent. So I go, all right, well, I'll, I'm happy to take that bird in the hand and stay at the short end without having to take to get to get paid seven and three quarters for the next 18 months. Because if I have to, it, you know, invest out to 2029 to get it in the same credit, I'm taking an awful lot more interest rate risk and, and spread risk out there to do that. So is that what they call term premium, the academics? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I don't follow what the academics say too much. I like that.
Uh, but so, so you're saying normally that curve would be slightly upward sloping? Normally the curve should, should be up, more upward sloping than yeah. it is today. Um, and, and I'd say in, in aggregate, it's probably slightly upward sloping, but it's, it's flatter uh, overall than it probably has been for a while. And that's one of the reasons why we're able to find some of the opportunities we are in that one to two year part of the market. We, you know, we were very, very um, active in the commercial paper market mm. for the last sort of 18 months. And companies have start have stopped um, funding as much in commercial paper as they used to, as it's gotten more expensive. Because you know most of the commercial paper issuers are investment grade, and so they started to say, "All right, well, if rates are going higher, I'm going to start you know issuing longer debt, and it's not costing me a whole lot more to issue that longer debt than it is to issue the short debt." So the CP market actually is the activity levels have have gone down as a result of companies looking to term out their financings a lot more. It's fascinating, Craig. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing your insights. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Great. Thanks. Appreciate it.